Welcome to the Creative Condition Podcast, the show where I, Ben Talon, illustrator and writer, invite people from the creative industry and far beyond to share their story of creativity, both the nature and the nurture, the chaos and the calm. Creativity is a fundamental pillar of human happiness, something I'm increasingly fascinated by and so often misunderstood. So little by little, I hope to build an archive of fascinating stories, experiences and tips to help you maximise yours. The show is supported by Illustration X. Go and take a look at their incredible global range of illustration and animation portfolios now at illustrationx.com. If you like the music for the show, go and listen to Dirty Freud over on Spotify and all good music platforms now. Today I'm joined by Jeffrey Madoff, who's a director, photographer, writer and professor in New York City. He's also the founder and CEO of Madoff Productions, a film production company that creates award-winning branded content, including commercials, web content, music videos and documentaries. And I wanted to talk to Jeffrey with you guys today to delve deep into the world of branding and creativity. It's a fascinating conversation coming from years of experience and wisdom, and I hope you're going to enjoy Hello and welcome to the show. Welcome back. How are you doing? I do apologise for the week's delay on this one. I am back just now from the fantastic Off Festival in Barcelona. The first time that I've been, and I know that a lot of you guys listening, it won't be the first time you were there because it's, and I can see now why it's something of a pilgrimage to a lot of people because it's amazing. Do you know, I think with covid and everything that's gone on it's taken us a while to warm up on the social side of things and for me as a new twin parent i you know my life was already turned upside down two months before covid kicked in and then it was a a kind of flipped back another way um so for, for for those reasons i wasn't going anywhere and while i did still checking with friends and family that you know the best we could like anybody else throughout covid and then afterwards um, it was always going to be that way for me. So to get back to a festival like that, now now what were the numbers? Um, it was at the, I'm going to say it really wrong now, I apologise to any Spanish listeners, um, Disney Hub. Somebody did tell me the proper pronunciation, but I've forgotten. I think that's essentially design in Spanish. Um, but it was this amazing big brutalist building in the city centre right near Sagrada Familia. And... 4,500 visitors came every day and there were 68 or 78 speakers on any given day. No, no, sorry, across the festival. Oh, man, it was incredible. And I think we've I'd forgotten just how good that crackle was. And, I mean, it's good enough when you go down to your local get-together at a pub or, um, you know, uh, any institution. But to be there in a city like Barcelona with all them people there just to learn and get inspired and to share what they've learned was just a massive rush. And I came back gushing with ideas. Now go back and listen to the episode with Hector Ayuso, the founder of OFF, if you haven't already listened to it, because we, we discussed the importance of these kind of events for the creative process because fundamentally 
no matter whether we are introvert or extrovert, we are social creatures and creativity thrives in these environments and that's where we share and learn and cross-pollinate and come away with so many ideas. And if not that, just a lift by being around all them people with a shared passion, you know, by having found our tribe and I just loved it. So if you haven't been to Off, do consider it. I think the tickets are going on sale for 2024. Early bird tickets go on sale 3rd of April, I believe. I'm not sponsored or anything by them, don't get me wrong. I did a talk at the festival, I did a mural, but that's by the by, I, I just a part of this amazing um, ecosystem of energy, positive energy, and it just, you know, we all came away with like reinforced motivations and new ideas and just a big kick up the arse and it was just incredible, so thank you to all the organisers and Hector for, for doing what he does at that festival. So that's why this episode is a week later than I would have liked than the usual bi-weekly format. I hope you enjoyed Adelaide Demoe's show, the last episode, it was incredibly powerful and deep and um, tough to listen at times. You know, racial abuse in the 80s in London schools and, and, and but ultimately really empowering like adversity always is. So I'll go back and listen to that if you haven't, please. Um, it's one of the I always say one of the best I've ever done. I feel like that about every every show, to be honest, because I just love doing this thing. Passionate about creativity. Um, before I forget myself, big thank you to the founding sponsor of the show, Illustration X. They're growing all the time, and you can see all of their incredible animation and illustration portfolios over at illustrationx.com, or check them out on social media at We Are Illustration X. Get me your feedback on the shows. Get me your thoughts. Tell me what you've been up to. Pitch yourself for an episode if you feel like it. I'm always open to ideas. At Ben Talon or at Ben Talon Pod on social media. Or hello at bentalon.com if you want to go email. That's cool too. Um, but I loved it. I saw some incredible talks. Let me think. Highlights, highlights. So a friend, it sounds like I'm kissing ass because I'm friends with Dave Sedgwick and I'm friends with Graham McGowan from Jam Hot up in Glasgow. But those guys just nailed it as did Craig Black also alumni on this on this show and I've loved watching Craig's evolution over the years I'm gonna have him back on the show soon um he has gone from breaking away from a design studio position to being a a designer with aspects of art within his portfolio to then becoming an, uh, an incredible artist with his acrylic fusion technique and I finally got to see one of his live uh acrylic fusion treated footballs um we did it live at the festival off and it's just amazing to see how craig's come along so well so i'm going to get him back on the show and talk about the family business model that he's set up of late with uh his lovely wife allison uh inspiring inspiring stuff uh i saw sarah boris talk and sarah was amazing i got to hang out with sarah from mutual friends at the festival and i love her work but i didn't know what nature a talk was going to take on but it was really really inspiring because she much like Carrie, Le- uh, Carrie Lemon, who's been on this show, she doesn't restrict herself with medium or boundary and, and she will go for the next creative project and make it work and find a way to, you know, to, to, to make that pay. And it's just, uh, I love that. I love seeing these these people who just go out and do on their terms. And that's what's wonderful about this game is how people do it their way. Really, really um amazing stuff but so many great talks uh, and i hugely recommend it i think it was a couple of hundred quid for a ticket but that goes over three four days and it's action-packed with workshops and events and beautiful little craft market downstairs and there's food and drink it's all very reasonably priced and it was just um you just can't put a price on that energy um but without further ado jeffrey madoff so i've got jeffrey on the show today um Jeffrey does a lot of work, but he does essentially branding work. 
through film and video production and photography with clients including Victoria's Secret and Ralph Lauren and he's done this for a long time bit of a veteran in the industry lovely lovely man uh, it turns out he was also a twin parent which I loved discussing with him before we got to recording this show um but he's got some great wisdom to share some great quotes as well and some very interesting insights on what branding is which he terms as a story well told so for you branding monkeys out there this is a big one and um I hope you can enjoy it. I don't have a lot else to say about Jeffrey. He was just very warm, very accommodating, but just there's something about New Yorkers as well that I just uh, I adore. I've been there and done podcasts in the past, like with my friend Kyla Palucci, who lives over there and was working at HBO at the time. And there's a real crackle and and get up about the the city's cultural energy, and and I love just getting people from it. Jeffrey is very much that. Um, so let us know your thoughts like I said cheers for checking in go and check out the archive they're all up there now we are going to be coming up very very soon on the 200th episode Uh, there is even talk about a big new live podcast but we'll get to that down the road because it's not just yet if you're on LinkedIn please do go and subscribe to my brand new newsletter also titled The Creative Condition where I'm going to be giving insights to the book that's going to be coming out either late this year or early next. It remains to be seen when the first draft is completed, which is not too far away, but I'm sharing the process, the insights, the learnings, the ideas that people have given me about creativity. So I'm very excited about that. Go and subscribe if you want regular updates there over on LinkedIn. And that's about it. Let's get to it. Jeffrey Madoff from Madoff Productions. Enjoy the show. I was born in Akron, Ohio. Uh, And uh, it was a... My parents uh, were retailers. They had clothing stores. And uh, they were entrepreneurs and had this small business. And so I I grew up in a household that offered me, I think because of the type of people my parents were, kind of a wonderful uh, foundation for expressing myself. So when there was uh, early indications of how much I'd like to draw, they would bring home big sheets of craft paper they'd wrap packages in, and I could draw whatever I wanted. And, you know, and I was always uh, attracted to writing stories. And I loved comic books. Uh, And that's stayed with me my whole life because it's kind of evolved into graphic novels and things like that, which I really like. I've always liked animation as a result and uh so my parents were very open in terms of whatever mode of expression you know whether i liked the stories or whether i liked drawings that i could do these things in my room was my room i didn't have to clean it up uh i could put stuff on the wall and so i had compared to most of my friends a lot of freedom and i didn't when i was a kid really it's just the life I knew but I didn't really realize that that was unusual that my parents you know kind of encouraged and let me do that and I've done the same with my kids uh and because that's what I know and my wife grew up in a much more disciplined situation uh but her natural self is also towards expression she's very creative and does really cool things. So our kids were always encouraged, probably, I guess, because I was, 
And that was the mode that brought my wife the most happiness is when she would be in that state doing something like that. So there was nothing extraordinary about my childhood other than, you know, it's, I would say the, the majority of my friends are people I grew up with to this day. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, I guess this is a good indicator of, of childhood for me, there were two streets and on those two streets, there was probably 16 kids. There's always people to play with. Mm. You go outside and, you know, you just played. Uh, and it was great. When we got into lockdown because of COVID, I actually did a zoom reunion Mm. and got like, 12 of the kids from the neighborhood, many of whom had not seen each other for 50 years. And I got us all together on Zoom. And one of them lived in a neighborhood, different house and everything, but lived in a neighborhood. And she went around with her phone showing us the houses we grew up in. Wow. Yeah, it was fabulous. It was absolutely fabulous. And I thought, well, that was just so much fun. And those, I'm the only one that had still been in touch with everybody, Mm. you know, and, uh, And so it was, it was great because there was absolutely no gap to bridge among all of us on that call. And we were all so happy to see each other, even though probably most of them hadn't thought about any of the other ones, you know, in any serious way for a long time, but it was, it was a lot of fun. So friendships play, uh, you know, a real sense of play, a sense of curiosity and adventure, all of those things were very much a part of my growing up. And because I enjoyed them so much, I've sort of, that's always been my path that first I have to enjoy what I'm doing. And I think as I've gotten older, understand that also a sense of fulfillment Hmm. is really important, you know, to accompany that. So I've never been driven by money. Uh, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to make a living with my ideas, but I couldn't imagine what else to do, mm-hmm. you know? So I had very supportive parents who were, who were really wonderful and there was nothing out of bounds with them. I mean, obviously within reason, I didn't present any terrible problems for them to cope with, uh, but I think part of the reason I didn't is that I could act out through drawing. I could act out through writing stories. I could do those kinds of things. So that's not like there was the pressures that built up because I was always being shut down, which is, you know, what I think happens to a lot of people, whether it's their parents or teachers or even peers. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I can honestly say that I had quite a happy childhood that I still have many friends from that time that I'm in regular contact with and that I'm very grateful as I matured and recognized that my parents were more outliers than the norm in terms of the freedoms that they gave me, which was really wonderful. Mm -hmm. And I think you hit on something, you hit on two things that, well, several things that are really important, two things that stood out to me there. and, And there's something, the outliers thing, it makes me sad that, that that's the case because it really is and it's become a big driving course in the reasons I do but this show, you know, the books that I write. 
Well, actually, I, I, I recently had a lady on the show called Professor Anna Abraham, and she's a, a neuroscientist who specializes in creativity. Fascinating lady. And, um, and the way she described it is that we've not yet had our fitness moment that happened in the 80s when everyone realized that they could do that too and that it would be you know it was good for them and we've not had that for creativity yet and part of her the drive for her work is that she she wants to see that as soon as possible for for many many reasons um and i you know i think when we get to a tipping point hopefully where families see that and will support those ideas and not try to stifle or question or say you know, how are you going to make a living from that? And all those all those horrible questions that kind of kill this natural curiosity, then I think we'll be in a good place. The other thing that you mentioned was the playing out. Now, I've written a chapter just on playing out in this book because there, I think you have to retain that in life from a thematic standpoint. So, you know, not just, yeah, we play out as kids. Of course, you reach an age where that playing out takes on a different guys maybe it happens at gigs maybe it happens uh, at a football ground i don't know what that is for each person but i would you agree that it's important to retain that sense of magic and that sense of curiosity um you know certainly in creativity but but beyond that to find fulfillment oh absolutely absolutely uh you know i the course that i've been teaching for 15 years is called creative careers making a living with your ideas and you know, it's funny because when you started asking me about my childhood, one of the questions that I would ask my guests in my class is, you know, if we'd have known you as a kid, would we see any indications of what it is you're doing now? And when it's in creative fields, when they're as adults are, are uh, creative in what they're doing, the answer is always yes. Mm -hmm. And I think that I actually think that the root cause of many of the terrible problems we have, uh, and in the United States, we see it with gun violence, which is horrible, are people acting out trauma that they never dealt with in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. And I think that a sense of play and creativity is something that helps us deal with trauma, maybe even the need for expression isn't acting out of that. I'm talking about creative or artistic expression. But I think that the consequences of shutting people down, of people feeling marginalized, uh, the res that's the result of a kind of trauma or humiliation that they experienced younger mm -hmm. and that it's never been dealt with until some catastrophic event. And uh, which is not to say that everybody who has trauma, because I think everybody has experienced different kinds of trauma. Uh, that's not to say that that's the only way to deal with it. But uh, I think that lack of play, lack of self-expression, feeling shut down or humiliated or embarrassed has really horrible psychological effects on people. Mm hmm. So the sense of play, I think, is a lot more important than just a sense of play. I think it allows us to release certain things that maybe we don't have another outlet for, and that can go into creative expression, but it can also go into sociopathic expression if you uh, don't have the opportunity 
or haven't learned how to channel it into things that might be more constructive. Yeah, because humans have a boiling, we have a breaking point, all of us, you know? That's right. And, That's right. and I always think it's, you know, I, I, one guy I had on the show who I'm friends with is Stephen Bliss, who did all the artwork for the Grand Theft Auto video games for Rockstar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Stephen talked about you know turning up for work in the late nineties to picket lines and and you know all the people who pointed the finger at Rockstar for gun violence because they were they they made that lazy connection between Grand Theft Auto and and, and people who would go and do that and I think you've hit the nail on the head and and that's the way I see it it, it doesn't matter whether it's Eminem rappers you know it's 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 never about someone sees the thing and goes and does something horrible it's exactly what you said jeffrey it's that it's the stifledness the marginalization the um all those horrible things that happens because i always say it's a creativity is a fundamental pillar of human happiness i believe that and we 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 all need to express ourselves because that's a byproduct of intelligence you know and um so I find that an interesting grounding question for your course. I think that's great. And I think it's I think that's also really healthy for people to to consider that too when it comes to creativity. I'd be I'd be interested to see your students' responses to that actually. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's interesting because whether I'm dealing with students or if I'm speaking at uh, some kind of a conference, what's almost always the hardest is to get the first person to talk. Mm-hmm. So it's not just that they are younger and embarrassed, you know, it's the same thing with uh, the older adults, so to speak. And one of the most common things that comes up is the, what I don't agree with at all, by the way, is the binary notion. Well, you know, I'm, I'm uh, not very creative, but I'm good at business or I'm very creative, but I, you know, not any good at business. Mm. And to me, a knowledge of business is a survival skill so that you can continue to do what you love doing. And that's how I've managed, fortunately, to be able to make a living with my ideas because I have enough business savvy that I know how to have agency over my work and value what I do so I can get paid for it. And uh, so, you know, it's interesting because I think very early on, that binary proposition of I'm creative or I'm not. Uh, And most people don't think they're creative. And, you know, part of part of my mission in my class is to break down those artificial walls and obstacles, because it's not a binary proposition. You know, you can be both. Mm -hmm. But, you know, first, you have to recognize that in yourself and do that and uh, and be brave enough to expose yourself, uh, which means exposing yourself to criticism or people who don't like what you do or whatever. And then it's how you cope with it, you know, afterwards and how you regroup and realize that that's their opinion. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, with my play that I have, that's uh, it's going to be, we had our first commercial run this past March and then we're opening in Chicago. It's gotten to be rather a, a thing now which is exciting and I, I and i love it uh and what i started doing was i never before i used to read you know uh, one or two critics now i'm reading a bunch of different ones to get an idea of criticism and which falls into a few different camps but you know criticism i realized ultimately is that person's opinion 
Now, some people are more learned than others. They have reasons which they articulate as to why they thought something worked or didn't work. But uh, even the best among them, it's still an opinion. It's not objective fact. And so you have to realize, first of all, these things aren't personal attacks because they don't know who you are, <laughs> you know, uh, and some are just frustrated playwrights on their own. And so anybody else doing it, they, their criticism is often rooted in the play they would have written, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, uh, and that's true going back again to childhood when you're dealing with your art teacher in school or, uh, you know, other, other adults comments on what you do or, or even other kids comments, they're, they're not, uh, they're not off. They're often, how can I say this? They, they don't know. They're just saying, however, something affects them, or they could resent the fact that you're getting attention and they're not. And so they turn attention back on themselves uh, by making some uh, conflicting statement. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, because of the way that uh, this, our conversation has gone so in the directions we've gone, Ben, it's kind of interesting because uh, some of my haltingness is I'm thinking about 50 things that this could, you know, go into like fireworks, you know, where they're, you know, you see that initial boom and then it goes all those lights that go in all the different areas. So I'm, I'm, you know, thinking about all the different aspects of what we're talking about, but only one can make it out of my mouth at a time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, speaking of your course, so I listened to you talking about it on another show and it sounds brilliant to me because I particularly love the emphasis on, um, you know, the lack of defining lines between disciplines and actually the overarching approach. Would you mind just touching upon that? Because I think this is really, really vital. And I think that we're at the moment in the industry, I feel like we're in danger of becoming too, I don't know if algorithmic's the right word, but I feel like there are too many boundaries between disciplines when everything about creativity goes against that. Well, I think one of the, you know, it depends, first of all, on what your creative mode is, right? So, for instance, in in doing a play, although the initial work is me alone writing it and then rewriting and rewriting and rewriting, you know, because I think that all art is a process of editing. I think that's the critical step in all art and expression is editing. Uh, but in a play, it's not a solo activity. It's made to be seen in performance, not read like a novel. And so it's about building the right team and the collaboration that goes on in order to achieve what should be a shared goal and clearly stated by the playwright in theater and the director. And so that everyone is kind of reading out of the same hymnal, if you will in terms of what you're doing if you're painting or if you're an illustrator and you were doing things you know if you're an illustrator to me that kind of on one hand presupposes you're doing work for a client so you have to have that clear communication and collaboration with the client in order to fulfill the job you were hired to do which doesn't mean you can't bring in your own creativity and insights and everything else 
but since they're paying for it, you know, they, uh, they want to know what's going on and understand what's going on. And I think being able to talk about and define your work is really important to do. So I think that uh, there's a myth left and right brain. Mm-hmm. And, you know, somehow your right brain is the creative part of your brain. And, and uh, you know, the left part of your brain is more mathematical and organized and all of that. In terms of cognitive neuroscience, when brain mapping became much, much more sophisticated, which wasn't until the late 80s, early 90s, uh, what was realized is there's so much crosstalk in the two hemispheres of the brain, they aren't separate. And you can't tell the brain of a creative person from the brain of a very uncreative person. Uh, There's crosstalk through the hemispheres all the time. But again, that became a convenient out for people. Well, yeah, I'm really right-brained. Oh, I'm a really a left-brained person. Well, that's just not the case. Scientifically, that is not the case. So I think, uh, and I'm wandering off of your topic, as both a demonstration of just how fucking creative I am and the <laughs> fact that I, <laughs> that I can't hold one thought at a time anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think you you speak to something. Do you know what Sir Ken Robinson um put it wonderfully when he talked about the you know the, the frontal lobe of the brain and, and it being the predominant ro- playing a predominant role in, in the interpretation of music and speech but then saying that if you were to cut that part off it wouldn't hum a, a hum a tune in your hand you know <laughs> it's like it can't it can't function in isolation you know this is the brain works as one unit so yeah exactly right and i think that you know there's, there's a guy that i had on the show called sir so called john newbegin and he's the chair of Creative England. And um, we had a big conversation about the, all the flaws in the education system that speaks to the way you run your course in, in terms of, you know, it should be much more interdisciplinary. We, should, we shouldn't be drawing all these dividing lines between science and art and business and tech. And there was a st- he, brought, he brought a study to my attention, uh, and it had taken place in Bristol. And the results came back and quite conclusively showed that the businesses that were excelling the most financially in all areas and performance were the ones that gave equal balance to tech, business, and art. And they catered for that in their staff, the way that those staff were enabled to cross-pollinate and to and to collaborate. And it sounds like common sense when you relay it like that, but there's so little attention to that. And you only have to look to Leonardo da Vinci as like arguably the greatest polymath of all time. It, that doesn't happen by chance. Of course, he was a completely sharp-end example. But, you know, he didn't see any needs to look beyond the web of life and the way that all these things link up, be it the flight of a bird and the flight of a helicopter, the Mona Lisa. Okay, he, he took it to extremes. But, you know, that's the way life works. That's the way we, we our brains want to interpret the world. So I just think it's kind of just so counterproductive to creativity's nature that we, you know, that you'll see designers sitting there and just reading things by graphic designers and not getting out into the broader world. You know, I just think it's kind of nuts. And when you look at any of your work, Jeffrey, I, I particularly love the Victoria's Secret stuff and the stories behind the branding for that. But that doesn't happen so successfully without you having an awareness of that and about people and about psychology and all this stuff. So I thought we could just start to touch upon branding on that basis because you spoke some fantastic advice about branding. Um, in particular, one that jumped out was that promoting the shit out of something will not sell it. That's not a brand. I thought that was just so good. And I wondered if you would just mind elaborating on on that, on branding, and why it's not just an act of sitting there and, you know, 
making a logo or designing a website and, and, and the kind of observational personality stuff that has to come with that? Well, what differentiates products and uh, what keeps a, a product without a brand and a brand is the connection and emotional connections with the consumer. Uh, and so I'll give you an example. Uh, there's many really good computers out there. However, there's only one manufacturer and I will say one brand that excites people and that's Apple. And by the way, I don't use Apple products. Uh, because I'm looking more for uh, what's the bang for the buck. I'm not so interested in joining a cult. And, uh, but Apple is absolutely brilliant. And the real strength of Steve Jobs was being a brand steward. So what did he do? He created a product that had a high level of aesthetic. Their industrial design was beautiful. Even though a great amount of their work was appropriate, design work was appropriation by, uh, from a man named Dieter Braun, who designed for Braun, uh, Dieter Ram, who designed for Braun, who made appliances. And if you, if you Google uh, Braun versus Apple, you will see how the precursor to many of Apple's designs came from Dieter Ram, who designed for Braun. And he also wrote the 10 Principles of Design, which is really, really good. So there was the creative aspect of creating a desirable product, understanding how people use the product. How many times have you used something you thought, God, whoever designed this never actually used this thing. It's impossible to use. Apple created a very friendly, user-friendly interface, which actually they took from Xerox. <laughs> that was the graphical user interface, GUI, G-U-I. And WYSIWYG, what you see is what you get, started with Xerox and Xerox Park. And uh, Jobs and Wozniak, when they were closing down Xerox Park, saw the operating system. But they were conscious about user experience. They were, they were very aware of design. Jobs had great taste. And so what they were able to do is create a brand. And their brand at first was Think Different, if you remember their first commercial. And so they did a fantastic job of creating a brand that they were the outsiders and also cool tech, <laughs> you know, really cool tech. So uh, Apple took what is a commodity, which are computers, and created a brand where there was an emotional bond with the consumer. And when they gained that trust, they could then <clears throat> introduce other products, be it the iPod, the tablet, the smartwatch, all these different things, because they had the trust of the consumer. And so the consumer was willing to try Apple products because Apple also created a whole ecosystem about what they did. So nobody's really excited about buying a Dell computer. You know, hear people say, oh my God, the newest Dell, let's line up around the block to get that. Uh, and what Apple did is create something that resonates uh, through smart design, easy user interface uh, and creating that connection with the consumer. And that's what separates a brand from a commodity. And that's true in everything. 
It's true in apparel. It's true in cars. It's true in just about everything. Those that are successful in building brands uh, are successful in getting a consumer loyalty and triggering that kind of emotional response. And so a brand is what separates a product being a commodity to something that's being desired. And that state of desire is what's essential to a brand because people want Apple. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Disney is another great example of building a brand based on family entertainment. Victoria's Secret was a brand. They've gone through a lot of changes now, but they were a brand that they were selling the promise of sexy. You know, that's what they were doing. So Nike did it with, you know, athletic excellence. And I think, you know, Nike is another company that, through really thoughtful and intelligent creating brand creation, you know, I go, when I'm lecturing about this, I go like that, you know, and I just, for those who can't see us, since this is audio, I did basically like a, a rounded check mark in the air and I'll be in front of a few thousand people and say, what brand is that? And they'll say Nike. And then what's the, what's the, Slogan of Nike. Ben, do you know the slogan of Nike? Um, no. Just do it. Of course. Yeah. 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 Okay. I can't backtrack now, but yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and although they've tried to move away from that, it is so brilliant in its implication and simplicity that mm -hmm. it just works. So the point of a brand is to create a connection through story, because a, a brand is a story well told. And that creates a connection with the consumer, which triggers desire so that you want the products by that particular brand that are created by that particular brand. And so brand creating a brand is, is fascinating. I mean, you see it in McDonald's with their golden arches, you know, and where the whole idea, and this is a whole other podcast for us to do, but the, the whole idea of a brand, the tenants for a brand, a recognized symbol like the swoosh or the golden arches or the apple with the bite out of it, uh, that universal recognition, uh, that connection to the story and what that means, all started with religion. And when you look at the tenants of religion, a recognizable symbol, a story that goes along with it, uh, people that are evangelists for it because of their connection to it. Uh, those are the people you see lined up around the block at an Apple store when a new phone's coming up. But I think that era is done. But, you know, they got it, for, had it for years. Uh, those are the things that if you look at religion and you, uh, and I'm not saying this to be sacrilegious, the tenets of religion are very much the same thing. And that's adherence to a symbol and a belief in a story. And I go deeper into it in my book, but it's very interesting. It hit me one, one day when I was just thinking about, thinking about, well, what a brand, why do brands, good brands work? What are the similarities that these brands have? And it drew me back to Christianity uh, in terms of what they do and how religions work through symbol and story and ritual. Mm -hmm. that's absolutely right isn't it and it's you know it's not as if nike just got out of bed one day and, and made this amazing logo and everyone just bought in you know it's got to be intrinsic 
and as you said there trust and um and, and, a, and a will to be a part of it a real you know you have to hand right. that, you have to hand that over to the you know to the whatever it is the consumer the student the you know um i think it's so true and i think you know we talked about the wrestling thing earlier wwe it's probably another one you know the the work they've done and, and the way it's just become it's a way of life for the fans you know the whenever my brother and i will go to wrestlemania for example the energy outside that arena it's not just that we've come to see a show we're there for the week we want to meet the other fans we, we sit in bars and talk about it you know that's the fun and that's because where we are we're all disciples of it you know it's that's it's, right and it's done in the same way and we love that and we, we're very open and honest about that and we wear it as a badge of honor you know <laughs> well when you when you think about that one of the things that's really fascinating is that uh that wrestling what it, what it has become and it probably really started what maybe with vince mcmahon in the 80s or so that it really became much more of a spectacle than just you know two guys throwing each other around in a ring it's a, a continuing story it's the good guy who some event happens over the course of sometimes even a few years becomes the bad guy who is then redeemed back to the good guy, <laughs> you know, I mean, classic mythic stories. Uh, and then the alliances that are forged by two people that used to be enemies, then they become, you know, all, all of that stuff. And so when you look at it from the notion and point of view of story, uh, it's really interesting because they've created these ongoing stories and you know the challenge you know that is put out and uh all of the betrayals i mean all of this kind of stuff it's just like epic stories mm -hmm. that you know are certainly a bit over the top on one hand but on the other hand when you see the popularity of it and how people really love it becomes fans of it they become a fan of that world that is presented to them and that story that is unfolding. Yeah. Uh, and even though the unfolding of the story is usually somewhat predictable, you know, uh, you know, they're smart enough to throw things in where the hero gets knocked off the horse, so to speak. Yeah. And you wonder if they're going to survive. Yeah. And the bad guy somehow shows a moment of humanity and then becomes the good guy. <laughs> and so that shifting is, is really interesting because that's storytelling. Yeah, absolutely, and and I think the fact that you know in this in the way that you you will forget you're just watching two guys in trunks in an arena because you <laughs> you want to tear one of them apart because they've done their job so well. I think that's amazing, and that's theatre at its pinnacle because it's 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 this just you and them. There's nothing between you, maybe the ropes, and that's it, and the guardrail. But that's it, and the fact that they can make you feel that way speaks, I guess, as much to the brand as and the story told, but also maybe in the same sense that you mentioned there with nike you know you 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 forget that you're just wearing a shoe that somebody's made because it becomes so much more because they've just threaded that narrative so well that's right you know and it and it, and it, it just so i want to turn, turn the question back on you you know and, and your own brand was there a point in your career when you became sort of consciously aware of this or do you think this is something that you you know grew to become attuned to the branding stuff you mean for myself or for clients? Yeah, I, I guess for both, but 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 particularly for your own brand and the way that you, because I think there's something that's very, having listened to other interviews, there's something very 
just completely relaxed and and there's a real love of creativity that, that emanates from you when you speak about this stuff and i just and i and to me that comes across as a brand in the best possible way that surely your quiet your clients will buy into and and trust you for um but was there a point when you realized how important that was that it has to be real and it has to be human or was it just something you did naturally it's something i did naturally hmm. and, and what i mean by that is uh I think that one of the overlooked skills that are, is really necessary to cultivate when you're in business or when you're dealing with any collaborative art form uh, is listening. And so, you know, I'm, when I'm pitching for a job, they're hiring me for a reason. So I've got to really concentrate on what are they hoping to get out of this? So if I just talk about myself when I'm pitching, to me, that's uh, not going to engage the client. And what's going to engage a good client is the rapport that you have and the understanding you show of what they're hope the result they're hoping for, even if you veer off of that. And you know, sometimes it's you know the the maxim of uh, sell them what they want and deliver what they need. <laughs> and so I was good at doing that. I mean, Ralph Lauren was a client for 38 years. I never had a contract because I kept myself necessary by never taking the business for granted and always trying to come up with fresh ideas, which was a challenge, but a challenge that I, I liked. So I think that it's really important. I think when you talk about personal brand, which is kind of what you're touching on when you're asking me about myself. That's one of the phrases that bristles me because to me, uh, and I've, I've been on these on panels where, you know, people are explaining their personal brand. And then they say, you know, Jeff, so what is, you work with some of these global brands, what is your personal brand? And I said, there's, there's, there's no personal brand. Okay, what there is is your reputation. Yeah. And and that's what's important to maintain. So that means that you you deal with people with integrity, you listen to what they have to say, you respect your clients' goals. Because if you take the job and you're taking your their money, then to me you're professionally obligated to deliver on that promise. Mm -hmm. I, I, so many people I hear when they will take a job and then they'll just trash the client. Mm. And I'm thinking, why'd you take the job? You know, you got to believe in what you're doing, at least for that episode, because you've bought into that and you, you have sold on that promise. And so a personal brand is really, I mean, and I know lots of people that really carefully calculate their personal brand. And frankly, I'm always surprised when I think, can't other people see what transparent bullshit that is? You know, because that brand is your reputation. Your brand is what they say in the room after you walk out, <laughs> you know, and if it's, oh, God, what an asshole. That's your brand. <laughs> you know, That might be the best way I've ever heard it put, actually. That's fantastic. <laughs> and it's, it's just so true. You know, it's like I not again, this isn't about me, but it's I had a, you know, a, a recent job where I just I just I have a deep love to this day of, of getting to visit 
design studios and ad agencies and anything in this industry that I love because ever since I walked into art college after the the stultifying experience of higher education, well, not higher education, school, high school, I just fell in love with that environment. Even to this day, I'm in love with the fact you can just go and get a coffee and you can go to the toilet without putting your hand up. <laughs> and <laughs> from that moment forward, I just realized I found this tribe that I that I loved, that these people who traded ideas and the excitement of the new and creative. And, and I've worn that quite openly ever since and tried to help others in the way that people have helped me by sharing what I learned. And that's, if you want to call it brand, call it brand. But I project that out to the world and I try to use that as my divination tool to get creative work. And it works because I'm just real and I talk to people. And if, you know, it either works or it doesn't, just like anything in life with people relationships. But I'm just drawn to interesting people, to prickly people, to nice people. I just like people with a story and I like to know theirs. And I just think that that's the only really, it's always served me the best. If I send out a cold email to 10,000 people, I'm never going to get as much work as when I just walk into one person's studio and actually spend the time to have a coffee with them, find out how their day, how their day has been, who they're working for. And I just think it's, you can overcomplicate this stuff, you know? And, well, uh, yeah. And I, and I think, again, what you're describing about yourself to me is, you know, who you are. Mm-hmm. And I think once you try to, once you, one is trying to self-consciously construct a personal brand. Uh, and by the way, there's enough insecure people out there that will buy into that if you've got high visibility for your personal brand. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there, there, there are so many situations where the emperor has no clothes. And, uh, but I think that the key, and, and you hit on it with the learning, the key to being creative is to constantly be curious and constantly be learning because the way that you can be bring value to varied disciplines and break down those artificial walls in between those disciplines is by listening and by exposing yourself to enough ideas, read books, go to conferences, talk to people you've never talked to before, go to movies, go to plays, go to, you know, expose yourself to as much as possible and each of those little pins of light populate your brain and can ricochet around and that collaboration with yourself and those ideas that are pinballing around in your own head can lead to something special but the way that you do that i think curiosity is the fuel of creativity and i think that's absolutely essential and being curious and constantly learning and constantly exposing yourself to those different kinds of things is going to make you a more creative person because you're going to have a greater reservoir to draw. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely. And, and, and it, you know, it took me a good while after university to see the wisdom in why our lecturers would encourage us to just get in the library and pull out a few books from a section we'd never visited and and just see what was in there and it just you know that sounded like a foreign language to me at that point when i was you know whatever 20 years old and not ready to see the wisdom in that yet but i I, god yeah i I said i sell that on times 10 now to to students and try to you know just and, and not just to students but to stifled people who've lost their way because they've stopped listening to what's inside and they've bought into this whole idea of what they should be doing and what's expected in the industry and trends and all the stuff that that, that draws you away from your natural path you know i just think uh, just have fun and relax and enjoy your life and and the answers will come 
because that's what creative that's what feeds the creativity but there we go you know the industry's always been guilty of that and i think we're a little hive of workaholics sometimes that get caught up in you know seeing being seen to be busy <laughs> but you know the interesting thing is that that seeming to be busy i'm sure you've experienced it with your work as i have with mine is a loss of time that all of a sudden you realize god i spent just spent seven hours straight doing this and and that time went by so quickly and the reason is and this is a critical thing for me especially at this time in my life to get the a, a critical necessity and category is engagement the work has to engage me if i'm not interested in it you know i mean fortunately uh i'm not in a situation where i'm i'm desperate for income and so uh if I'm not engaged, because I'm ultimately seduced by ideas, not the money, uh, if I'm not engaged, I don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. And I am not afraid that, oh, my God, if I don't get that job, I'll get no jobs. There's always another client. Uh, and, you know, it depends. <sighs> the time passes so quickly. And. You know, I remember when I was a kid and I would hear that, you know, how fast the time goes and all the adults seemed to, that was the one thing adults seemed to agree. Well, now I'm old enough to realize, oh, fuck, they were right. You know, the time does go. So what happened? And I guarantee you, Ben, you're going to see that with your kids. You know, as we were talking earlier about, you know, that I have twins that are 29 years or three and we both have a boy and a girl. Mm hmm each day doesn't seem to go that fast but the aggregate of those days which become weeks months and years at a certain point you wonder what the fuck happened yeah you know when did they grow up when did i lose my hair and it went gray <laughs> you know what's going on here and so i think you know to Man, it's so important to just take advantage of the time that you have and to uh, open yourself up to experience as much as you can, because that is that corny thing of how fast time goes is so true. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, because time is a perception. Yep. And the, I think as you get older, each year that passes is a smaller sliver of the whole. You know, when you're four years old and a year passes, that's 25% of what you've experienced. By the time you get to be 50, that's 150th of what you've experienced. So the time just goes so much faster. The perception of it goes so much faster. Uh, it's, it's really interesting. And, and those are the kind of bromides that you hear, aside from time, is, you know, making use of it. And I like the connections between the words used to describe time and money, you know, don't waste your money. Don't waste your time. How are you spending your money? How are you spending your time? <laughs> you know, are you investing your money wisely? Are you investing your time wisely? You know, and uh, the difference though is you can replace money. When time goes, it when you spend the time, the time is gone. You can never get that time back. Mm -hmm. So it's way more valuable than money. Yeah. 
you know, because there is a scarcity and a depleting resource about time that doesn't exist with money. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to the time and effort economy and why it's kind of a falsity really in our world, because you, um, you know, you can, if you really structure your day well enough and you apply yourself, this is why I mentioned the diligent thing earlier. It's about, you know, it's about, you can, you can probably get a lot of great work done in a, you know, in a, in a few hours, if you apply it well, and then spend less of the time doing something fun. And that doesn't mean it has to be disconnected with work. That's a big mistake that people make is disconnecting, just having fun with the creative process, you know, and, and see it as this workmanlike thing that has to generate results in a very prescribed manner. And it's just not the way it works. And I think that, you know, that's why it's about value, whether it's for clients, whether it's about developing your own creative appetite. I just think that um, it's kind of old hat, the time and effort thing. And it's, a, you know, it's an industrial thing. Um, that's right you know so i would encourage and i and i would you agree with that would you encourage creatives to you know to, i mean i i i always i hate when i use that term creatives because we are all creative <laughs> but you know uh people in the creative industry would you encourage them to follow that mantra to to think about the value and the, and the quality of the time as opposed to you know working per hour and, and trying to sell their services that way oh absolutely absolutely you know how you value yourself uh, there's, there's an, there's another aspect to it. If you are selling your talents, uh, you want to value them appropriately, but first you have to sell yourself on the fact that you're worth it, you know, as opposed, as opposed to kind of going into a interview when you're doing a pitch with hat in hand, you know, uh, you have to project with confidence, not that you're acting, but with the fact that you believe that you are bringing real value to the situation and that you are worth what you are asking. And I think that's, that's, that's critically important. And I think adding to what you were just saying before is, I mean, on one hand, what you could distill it down to, it's not work more, it's work more effectively. Mm -hmm. uh, but also those times when I just go for, a, I'm in New York City uh, and I, you know, I'm a stimulus junkie and I take long walks every day and I photograph the city every day. I post a new photo of the city, I shoot it in black and white and just love doing that. It all informs my work. And I think everything you do informs everything else you do if you're paying attention. So I don't have a clear boundary between my work life and my not work life because sometimes it takes a while and, and people work differently but for me uh things percolate and i may be you know going on a long walk or working out or whatever and an idea will hit me because it's taken that long for those neurons to assemble and create the constellation that i can then have that aha and want to get it down on paper or whatever. Uh, and we all, you know, you have to discover how do you work the best? What time of day do you work the best? You know, now being a, a parent of young kids, you know, your, your time isn't your own anymore. So, you know, how do you figure out what's the best time? And of course, acknowledging that you're in, I assume in your marriage with somebody else, and you also have to make time for each other, which can also be difficult, mm -hmm. you know, and so parsing your time. 
<clears throat> is is uh, it's a challenge. One I've never mastered, by the way. Uh, <clears throat> but it it is it is a challenge. But yeah. I I do think that when you are pursuing a creative lifestyle, <clears throat> there aren't really boundaries because you may an idea may click when you see your kid playing with something. Uh, you know, I've had discussions, a polite way of saying arguments with my wife that have informed a character that I'm, that I'm writing about in the play. Yep. You know, you draw from everything. Mm -hmm. So in a way, I don't think there are any boundaries. No, nope. no, nope. that's the thing. I shared a thing just this morning saying how, you know, to, to, to exactly that point, um, a drawing of a man in the street who was in a bad way with drugs with his pants around his ankles that I illustrated for a short fiction story that I wrote, the first one that I wrote actually, was a big part of getting my biggest commercial job in illustration for a packaging job. You know, just, you just can't predict this shit. You've got to, you just got to live it, go with feeling and trust that. And as you say there, Jeffrey, project with confidence because, you know, you just don't know what that's going to open up and, and that should be exciting, not not scary, I think. Right. Well, I've kept you last uh, long enough. Um, where can people get your book and access your work? Uh, well, my book is called Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas. Uh, <clears throat> it's available on Amazon and all fine booksellers. Uh, and uh, they can see my work by going <clears throat> to madoffproductions.com. And I don't know if you're going to have any writing above or below where you'll put links or anything. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> you will? There'll be show notes. Yeah. Okay, good. And and you can, uh, if you follow me on LinkedIn, uh, <clears throat> I post quotes from my class and some really great insights from the guests that I've had. And you can also uh, follow me on Instagram at a creative career. And if you're curious about my New York photography and city photography, it's at Jeff underscore Madoff. Wonderful. Well, that's been um, a, a, an exhilarating listen, and I'm sure it'll be the same for the audience. So thank you ever so much for your time. Total pleasure. <clears throat> really enjoyed speaking with you, Ben. A creative conversation and had no idea where it was going to go. Yeah. So that was fun. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you so much to Jeffrey Madoff for taking the time to chat today from his busy schedule with Madoff Productions. Um, inspiring work over the years, some great campaigns. And um, I loved what he said about how he worked for about 30 years with Ralph Lauren as a client without ever having any kind of contract or retainer in place because they had a relationship and he checked in and, and, and looked out for what the client needed. And, that, and that's something actually that I've adopted in my own business model recently. I fell into the trap of kind of bombarding all and everyone through all the channels and big mail outs. And I still do the mail outs because I think they're quite valuable and they do update busy people who don't always have time for personal conversation and give them a snapshot of what you've been up to. But what I've really done, I've got, you might have seen them on the social media, but I worked with my wife who's a graphic designer to create two lovely new print pro promotional books, one for talent type, my hand lettering brand, and one for my illustration brand. Um, and they're about 40 pages each, give or take. And they gave, it's a bit of a best of of my work to date, 
with a little message in the front saying, I'd love to work with you. And I'm targeting these. It's a very limited run and I'm sending them to people that I've got either a relationship that's developed or a starting relationship with. And I'm using it to kind of crystallize what we've discussed so far and send them so I can be there on their desk and be in their mind. And then every now and again, just check in and just build a relationship and not expect work right off the bat and not go straight in with going, here's what I do. Here's what I can offer you and why it's good. It's about, no, what are you up to? How are you? What's going on? How can I help? And it might come across as insincere when you say it like that, because it, without the personal relationship, that's how it looks. But really, it's I love that. I love just checking in with people who I, who I know and trust and have worked with or would like to work with, and just taking care and asking some questions about what they're up to and what their role is and trying to pitch within that framework. Do you know what I mean? And just that's what I did right at the start when I was approaching the likes of when Saturday comes and the Guardian and you know I just talked to the art directors and asked them what was going on at the mag how things worked where might this stuff that I'm doing fit in and and that was really what I did and how I built my business and for a little while I kind of forgot that during the early malaise of parenthood fatigue and you know you can forgive anyone for doing that because it's bloody tough but I've really enjoyed getting back to a more personal level and it's what's always worked for me. So um, I think it's about the individual and the personality and what works for you and your schedule and your time constraints and everything else. But really, you can't put a price on human relationships. Uh, so there you go. There you have it. Jeffrey Madoff. We've got some great shows coming up. Tom Hodgkinson from The Idler. We've got Stephanie Powell Baxter a choreographer and dancer on the likes of the West End Productions Wicked, uh, Strictly Come Dancing, and we're going to be talking about dance as a medium and about creativity and energy within that and more physical expression. Really going broad with that one, but I, I love that. And if you listen to the Adelaide Demo show, you'll see the kind of crossover with arts and expression, and I think it's really important to explore far beyond uh, what we do. I love the stuff that Jeffrey had to talk about there with Disney and uh, WWE and, you know, the, the established brands and, and stripping it down to what they bring to their fan base. And I think it's really great advice. And projecting with confidence was something that grabbed me. And that's another turnaround for me recently. I went from being down on my luck because of this extended quiet spell to doing exactly that, projecting with confidence, regaining the passion in what I'm making and taking that passion out to the world, not just the product, but the passion behind it and being excited about it. And I think that that resonates far beyond the work itself, if you know what I mean. Uh, and I would encourage you, if you like the idea of that, go back and listen to the episode, the second episode of Dixon Baxi, in which Simon and I discuss with our Pova, um the resonant qualities of the work because you don't have the luxury of going, here's why I made it and here's why it works. You have to put it out into the world and give it away. And ultimately, the love for that work will resonate in some way with the end user. So there you have it. Uh, get me your thoughts. Hello at bentalon.com or at bentalon or at bentalon pod on social media. Do check out the founding sponsor of the show and their incredible array of illustration and animation portfolios over at illustrationx.com. Um, illustration X have been here since day one. Very, very valued. Um, that's about it from me. Have a great week, guys. Stay creative and get yourself to some public front-facing events. Tackle the fear if you've got the fear, because the, the energy that I brought back from Off Festival is just so precious, and I'm going out there already looking for more in my locality. You know, I want to get to writing groups. I want to get to any kind of creative meetups, because I just think it's really important to keep things moving, and it's easy in these isolated bubbles that we've found ourselves living in to forget that and think that we're actually all right here, you know, we're fine in our bedroom and we're still being creative, but you cannot overstate the um, the spark that you get from just being around your tribe. That's it from me. Have a lovely week, guys. Take care. <laughs>